Well, uh, we all find this out one way or another, right? But appearances can be deceiving. Like you can look at something and have an idea about what it is. You can even be pretty confident about it and then find out that your eyes were playing tricks on you. It wasn't the way it appeared. Uh, this, this can sometimes leave a mark. Like I remember this, this from when I was a child having this experience. Like you, you know that experience? I don't know. I hope it's not just me. That experience where as a child you, you're, you're like you're excited. You're church or something out in public and, and you see your mom's legs. And so you run to your mom and you're happy to see your mom and you grab your mom's legs and you hug them and then you look up at the face and you realize that's not mom. Like that is a terrible moment, right? It's like, ah, even if it's a nice person that you're hugging, it's like, I thought this was going to be mom and this is not mom. It's a terrifying moment. It, it leaves this mark in your mind. It, it's the same kind of thing happens when you, you, you find freshly baked chocolate chip cookies or someone's left them in the kitchen and you go to eat them and you bite into it and it's oatmeal and raisin. It's like, oh man. One time when I was a kid, I went into the kitchen and there was a glass of orange juice that someone had just left on the counter. And I was like, this is brilliant. I was so thirsty. I want a glass of orange juice. And I threw it back, not realizing that there was vodka in with that orange juice. That was a terrible moment in my childhood. You just like, it is such a shock. It, you have an idea of what this is going to look like and you're, you, you have been, you've been tricked. There's all kinds of like funny examples of that. But the reality is, as you grow, you experience all the painful realities of that too, right? Who of us hasn't seen something, evaluated, watched a person, evaluated, thought we could place our trust in them, in that thing, and then just been so disappointed? Like... Um, maybe it's, a, it's, it's an investment you're trying to, you're, you're, you're trying to get into, investing... And, and you're trusting some counsel that you've been given, and, and you're reading about this company, okay, I want to invest, and you, and you put money on it, and the whole thing just blows up. It's, it's, a, it's a house that you go and you buy in this crazy market in Toronto where you're trying to like figure out how do we get it and actually buy something, and, and so you go in and everything looks good, and even the inspector does a once-over, but in the end, there was stuff that even the inspector missed, and this place is a disaster, Oh, that is so discouraging, right? And, and how much worse when it's people. People that you thought you could trust. People that you put your faith in. People that you banked on and they betray you and they let you down. That experience is not something that quickly leaves, right? We've all been disappointed by something when appearances deceived us. We have to ask this question in Matthew 26. We have to ask this question about Jesus. Because through the first 25 chapters of the gospel, it's largely been Jesus showing us how awesome he is. Jesus is, is teaching and, and, and he's bringing this wonderful ministry of preaching the word. And Jesus is healing and the crowds are coming to him. And everybody loves him. And, and Jesus is proclaiming these amazing things. He's casting out demons. And, and he's, he's, he's rebuking the religious hypocrites. And, 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 and he's healing. Everything looks like it's amazing, like the kingdom is coming. But now, in these chapters of Matthew's gospel, all of a sudden, we're confronted with a weakness. Because even those close to Jesus start to fall away. And the crowds turn against him, and Jesus himself is going to be portrayed as one who is weak and who suffers to death. The question for us is, which is true? What can we trust? 
Is Jesus strong or weak? Is he able to save or not? Is he glorious or is he shameful? Can we trust this morning in in the midst of everything else going on in this text, all the things, all the characters, all the events, all the people, what I want us to do, what I think Matthew wants us to do is to fix our eyes on Jesus and look below the appearances to the substance, below the surface to the substance. Who is Jesus and can we actually trust him? I think this is the first thing Matthew wants to make clear for us in these first five verses is that Jesus is sovereign. If you have your eyes on Jesus in this text, you need to see this. Jesus is sovereign. Despite how things look, despite all appearances, even when it does not look like it, Matthew is making it clear that Jesus is sovereign. Look at verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming. The Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. If... If you're uh, the type of person that's really into commentaries and studying texts and chronologies and, and comparing like what one gospel writer says over against another and trying to figure out how things exactly work, you might be a little confused by the timeline here because everything Jesus has just said seems like it was on one day and now he's saying after two days the Passover's coming. What Matthew's done is he's rearranged the chronology. He's not telling the story in a chronological way. He's rearranged them thematically to overlay what Jesus is saying over against what the religious leaders are about to say. Jesus is very clear that in two days, so whether this is probably Wednesday, he's going to be crucified on Friday. And and what he's saying is after two days, in this precise timing, the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. But look at the next picture that we have in verse 3. The chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest. Don't, Don't miss that, right? In verse 6, we're going to find out where Jesus is. Jesus is gathering with his disciples in the house of Simon the leper. So Jesus is in the house of a leper. The the religious elite, the the, the elders, the chief priests, the, the high families of Israel, they're in the palace. And look at what they're saying. The, the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together. See, the, the leaders of the world are conspiring together against the Lord and against his anointed in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But here's the one thing they know. We don't know how we're going to do it, but we're going to do it. But, but here's the one thing we know. We know, verse 5, not during the feast. Lest there be an uproar among the people. <laughs> the one thing they think they know is the one thing that Jesus is going to say otherwise. Uh, this, this is good for us to think about, Jesus' control in this situation, because... It's going to affect how we relate to him. And I think you understand this experience, right? Like if you're driving and someone in the seat next to you is constantly questioning, like if you know what you're doing, like, do you see that sign? Okay, watch out. And they're just like, and it's, they're constantly, or, or if you're like making a financial decision, you're buying something and you've done the research, you're pretty confident. Someone's questioning, questioning, questioning. It's frustrating, right? To constantly be questioned about whether you actually know what you're doing. And the reality is we've given those people lots of reasons to question if we know what we're doing. Because if, like for me, for example, if you've lived with me for any length of time, you would probably start questioning what I'm doing too if I actually know anything. But it's still, for whatever reason, it, it, it irks us, it rubs us the wrong way. It can bring relational distance, right? When someone's constantly questioning. The, the, the question here is, do we actually trust 
Jesus. Think about the setting that Matthew's laying out for us here. Jesus, as unimpressive as he looks with his disciples, his no-names, these, these fishermen, a tax collector, this, this random group of people that he's assembled over against the chief priests and the leaders of God's people. They're in the house of a leper. They're in a palace. These people are plotting they're plotting with all their political scheming how to bring about their desire to end. Jesus is owning it. He's announcing his death. He's going to be crucified. He looks powerless. The people in the palace appear like they have power to actually bring about their plan. But despite the pretense and the pomp and the power and the pride of the priests and all their class in the palace, Jesus is the one who has a plan that will actually come to pass. Jesus says it'll be on Passover, so it'll be on Passover. Let me ask a question. Like, if you, if you think about the world, does it appear like the world is unfolding, like the events in the world, the story is unfolding the way it's, it's supposed to right now? Does it look like it's under control, like the proper people are making the right decisions? And this is, yeah, this is, this is the way I would write the story. Like, I'm not just talking about Canada. I mean, I don't know if you've seen any international headlines over the last little while. Like, things in the world are pretty crazy. But, like, not even just macro. Like, not just macro, global scale. Like, let's get micro here for a second and, and think about, even Pastor Jason was just praying this, praying for singles in our church. The reality is the membership of our church is over 40% single. Not a ton of you are like, yeah, that's what I want for my life. That's my goal. I believe God's called me to this. The reality is that the experience of singleness can be exceedingly frustrating. It feels like we're trapped, like we don't have control, like we want a different plan. How do we bring about our desired goal? And those of us who are married, how many of us have experienced in our marriages, oh yeah, this is going exactly the way I thought. <laughs> this is exactly what I was going for. That's not the experience of being married if you're a sinner and you're married to a sinner, is it? And when you get married, you have this plan. It's like, oh, yeah, we're going to have kids. But then the reality is how many of us in our midst have struggled for months and for years to conceive when it seems like the people down the aisle from us, all they got to do is look at each other and it pops another baby. <laughs> Man, that's frustrating. Right? Like you can joke. It's frustrating. We, the reality is one stage after another, it feels like we don't have control, like this is not going according to plan, like this is not the way it should be. You, you can see if you have babies, they grow, and then how many of us with grown children see in our kids they're not walking with Jesus, they're not making the decisions we longed for and prayed for, and what does that do? That amplifies a feeling of powerlessness. It seems like everything is out of control, it feels like this is not the way the story should be written. It feels like other people have the power that I want to have to be able to determine how my story unfolds. That's why it's so important to get our eyes on Jesus, right? Jesus with his disciples. Jesus who is about to die. But Jesus who says, it will be in two days at the Passover. Do you remember the Passover? Do you remember what the Passover was? The Passover was established in the Exodus when God's people were delivered from 400 plus years of slavery. 
They probably would have wrote that story a little bit different too, right? If they could, somewhere along the 400 years. But in God's timing, according to God's plan, he worked it down to the exact right scenario where Pharaoh, with all the, the most powerful and rich man in the world, opposing and enslaving God's people, but God sends what? A mighty man? No. Moses, who was hiding in the wilderness for 40 years before that, brings Moses, who's like, I can't even talk good. And, and God's like, you, you're the one that's going to go before Pharaoh. And again, Against all odds, against all the perceptions, God says, okay, now here's what you're going to do. You're going to sacrifice a lamb. The lamb's going to die. The blood's going to go on the doors, and my people will be set free. Just walk away. The most powerful in the nation in the world won't be able to hold you. And when they chase you, the very waters that delivered you, they'll swallow up your enemies. It shows us that no matter the, the pomp, the planning, the, the power of people, it is, it is God who is in control. Now ask this question. From whatever it is, 1,400 plus years before Jesus is sitting at the table with his disciples, so 1,400 years down to the precise day, how many scenarios, how many lives, how many individual decisions, how many lives, how many deaths, all had to happen in the exact right way for Jesus to be born and Jesus to be here and these high priests to be having this conversation so that at the exact right day, Jesus will be crucified according to God's plan. This is astounding. This is meticulous sovereignty. Appearances are deceiving. It does not look like the right person is in control. But friends, listen, Jesus determines down to the day how the story will play out. If you don't like being doubted when you think you know what you're doing, friends, what's it doing to your relationship with Jesus right now if you're constantly going after him like, God, you don't understand. God, you don't understand. God, why aren't you intervening? God, why aren't you changing this? As if somehow he's to be doubted rather than you. For some of us right now, we just need to be looking at Jesus and seeing his sovereignty and asking the question, do I really trust him? Do I, do I trust him? Jesus is sovereign, even when it doesn't look like it, but Matthew wants to show us more. He's going to say, not just is Jesus sovereign, but Jesus is supreme. Supreme. He's, he's supreme in value. He's supreme in worth. And he is worthy of supreme adoration and devotion. He's worthy of supreme praise and love and affection, regardless of if anyone else sees it or not. Even if no one else sees it, the people around you do not see it. Friend, you must see it. Jesus is supreme. This is what he says, verse 6. This is what Matthew writes. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper... A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment. Um, read a commentary saying uh, it's, it's, it's from apparently the, I was going to say Nard Dog. I was trying to figure out a way to say that just for the office fans out there. It's not Nard Dog. It's from a Nard tree, and it, and it, which apparently is a thing, and, and, it, and it's, it's very, very expensive. Maybe from India, they're speculating. Anyway, in any case, they, 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 she, she has this 
alabaster flask, and it's got a very thin neck. And, and once it's in there, it stays in there. And the only way to use it is to snap off the neck. So basically to, to open it is to use the whole thing. It is, it is to pour out the whole, so she pours out the whole thing, very expensive, on Jesus as a way of anointing him and honoring him as he eats. Verse 8, when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? Um, one of the other gospel writers specifies that it was Judas who spoke. Um, probably what's happening is something like this. There, there are times, and we're going to see one just in a few verses, where Peter speaks, and he speaks on behalf of all of the disciples. There's one person can speak on behalf of all of them. What Matthew wants you to see is it's not simply Judas, though he's the one speaking. It's not simply Judas who has this heart. The reality is that none of the disciples are, are seeing this rightly at this point. So Judas speaks on behalf of the disciples. He says, why this waste? This could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. They're thinking in terms of utility, in terms of practicality, what's the practical value of wasting something so expensive on Jesus? We could have put it to more useful, more practical things. But verse 9, or, or verse 10 rather, Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? And it's, it's strong language. It, it implies that, the, that, that they're really like going after her. So the collective of the disciples are going after this one woman who saw fit to lavish richly this adoration on Jesus. They're going after her. They're rebuking her. And Jesus says it, it, wasn't, it wasn't of mere utility. It was a thing of beauty. See the value distinction there? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Seeing that there's always going to be opportunity to give to the poor. As long as we're in this world, there's always going to be opportunity, but I will not always be here physically among you. She sees the opportunity to lavish her love in a tangible way, a beautiful way on me. He says, in pouring this ointment on my body, she's done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This is astounding. Jesus essentially promises, the Great Commission's coming in a few chapters, just a couple more chapters, and he says, everywhere the Great Commission goes, the gospel goes, this woman's story will be told. What she has done is so beautiful, it's such a faithful testimony to who I am, that everyone has to know about it. That is astounding how Jesus honors this woman. Now, now, now listen, think about the contrast with the very next verse. Then one of the twelve, you go from an unnamed woman to one of the twelve, one of Jesus' closest associates, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. That's, um, that's, that's the price that you would pay for a slave. Um, not like a good slave, just like a normal slave. And, and it's, it's a fulfillment of prophecy from Zechariah. And, and, and in Zechariah, it uses mocking language. It says, this is, look at the lordly price with which they, they valued me. Jesus fulfilling all prophecy. Judas fulfilling all prophecy here, selling Jesus. And listen, this is, this is the crazy thing. He's not simply selling Jesus. He's also selling himself for 30 pieces of silver. From, this, from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. How, how much is Jesus actually worth? 
You ever been in a, in a context where um, something is, you know, you're just not able to actually accur- accurately estimate the worth or appreciate the worth of something? Uh, when, when we were down in, in Mexico, I learned about a man named Carlos Slim. I, I'm, I'm pretty ignorant as a Canadian. I don't know much about the world. And so Carlos, Carlos Slim, is, uh, he's, he, from 2010 to 2013, he was the richest man in the world. I didn't even know he existed. But anyway, he's, he's, this, uh, he's, he's a businessman. And you know, when you have that much money, like what do you do with your money? So you just, I guess you buy art. So he, he buys all this art. We're not quite clear on how he Obtained all the art, but anyway, he, he got all the art, and, and he's he's now he he builds this um, museum where you can go and see. It's like I think it's I can't remember how I think it's like five or six floors, these huge floors, and you go and there's all these originals, like these sculptures and paintings and coins and and all kinds of beautiful things from all around the world, and I had no idea what any of it was, but like people around me did. They were like all the oohs and the ahs and the, oh I can't believe it's this guy and that guy and and like. And I'm just like, oh, yeah, I mean, you could have painted something in your garage and thrown it up in there. And I would have been like, wow, that's, that's incredible. I have no ability to discern. You know how frustrating that would be to be like an actual, like, art aficionado and be there with me? <laughs> I'd be like, you don't understand. This is amazing. And I'm like, cool. Um, here's, here's, the, here's the reality. There's, there's a contrast of someone who actually appreciates the value of what they're looking at, what they're beholding in Jesus with those who are fantastically ignorant. Here's here's a woman, an unnamed woman in a culture that doesn't prioritize or value unnamed women. Set up over against, in the narrative, over against the religious leaders who disdain Jesus and even the disciples who can't properly appreciate him. This is astounding. It's a contrast of delight versus disdain and, and, and really disillusionment. The, the, the religious leaders, they just disdain Jesus. They hate him. They hate his kingdom. They want to overthrow him. They want him dead. They want him out of the way because they've got their own things that they want to get on with, right? They want Jesus eliminated. They disdain him. But, but what about Judas? You know what's deadly to the soul? It's, it's disillusionment. It's, I put my hope in this. I thought it was going to be something. I really wanted it to be something. I put everything into it, and then it failed me. It let me down. Judas, here's the reality. He had something in mind that he wanted Jesus to be, and so he started following Jesus. But here's the thing. Jesus will never be what you want him to be. He always is who he is. And if you cannot appreciate him for who he is, he will not be your Lord and Savior. And Judas, having had hopes for someone who would make him rich and powerful and bring a kingdom and overthrow the Romans and all the things that he had really hoped for, finally discovered that Jesus would never be used for his own ends, is completely disillusioned. Get rid of him. Let's, let's be done with him. Let me at least gain something, at least get some pieces of silver for it. And this is all contrasted with this woman who, who takes this jar that's worth probably somewhere in the neighborhood of something like $50,000, snaps a neck, pours it on Jesus. You know what's not going on in her heart as she delights in him? Here's what's not going on. I wonder if this works out to 10%. Is that like 10% of gross or 10% of 
Like net, is that, is, oh, does this mean I don't have to give next year because I gave so much? Like that's not, you understand that's not her heart, right? And, and I'm, I'm not trying to mock careful thinking about what we give. I'm trying to show this is what delights Jesus' heart is that he is the delight of her heart. That she's like, whatever I've got, the most precious thing I own, let's go, let's pour it out, let's give it because of what he is worth. He's worth more than whatever is the most precious thing in the world to me. Her heart is to give it all to him. And Jesus delights most in the one who delights most in him. So he praises her, he esteems her, he honors her, he holds her up. Let me ask you a, a question as you think about your circumstances right now. Because I think, I think most of us want our heart to be more where her heart is. Like there's something gloriously freedom giving about that, right? But, but not just, just where my affections line up with my convictions and so that my decisions, the expression of my life could just be overflow of my heart and I can just give and not care and it'll be wonderful and freeing and joy. There'll be joy in that, like we want to get there. But let me ask a, a question that I, think, that I think has an impact on that. What do the people around you think about Jesus? The people that you interact with the most, how do they value Jesus? And, and the reason why I ask that is this, because so often the reason why we're afraid to be lavish and expressive and filled with delight and joy is because we think it makes us look foolish because no one else evaluates him the same way. If, if you understand art and you're excited to see a sculpture, then I'm like, whatever. You should just be excited about the sculpture because you know what it is. If you know what Jesus is, listen, you need to block out the voices of the world because what are the voices of the world? Jesus, his, his name is a curse word. Like, really, you want to associate with a church? You want to tell people to go to church? You're an evangelical? Like, what does that make you, a Trump supporter? Like, everything about that seems like it's attached with shame. And, and, and so we get caught up in what other people are thinking, how other people evaluate Jesus, and we're afraid to just give our own expression, our own evaluation of Jesus. What this story tells us, what Jesus tells us as he highlights this woman, is it does not matter who around you esteems Jesus highly or lowly. If you love him, pour out your affection for him. This is the most appropriate response of the heart because he is supreme. He is worthy of all praise, all adoration, all love, all affection, all of our gifts, all of our life. And that's what Jesus calls us to. Because he is supreme, regardless of what anyone else thinks about him. But Matthew's not done. He wants us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. He wants to help us understand why Jesus' sovereignty works for our good. And why the reality that Jesus is supreme becomes beautiful to us. It's because this third thing, Matthew wants to show us that Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Savior. Even to failures. And even to future failures, <laughs> people who haven't yet like fully flaked out all the way, the way we're going to. Jesus, in verses 17 to 19, gives instructions to his disciples about how to prepare the Passover. And so they go and they do it. Verse 20, we read about this celebration of this meal. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the 12. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. 
And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, is it I, Lord? Like, you got to picture this scenario, right? Jesus is saying, there's, there's, they're sitting around the table, they're reclining at the table, they're leaning on one arm, and feet away from the table, reaching in, eating, you take the bread, you dip it in the bowl, you eat, they're eating together. And Jesus looks around at them, the 12 of them with him, and he says, one of you is going to betray me. Now, each of them knows their hearts well enough, at least at this point, in this moment of sobriety, to say, whoa, hold on. Not me, right? Like, I know, I kind of know it could be, but it's not me, right? One after another, they ask this question. And Jesus answers this way in verse 23. He says, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Again, it's another fulfillment of prophecy from the Psalms this time where David, in writing this, is reflecting on the reality that it was a close companion of his. One in whom he had trusted, one with whom he'd had close fellowship who was now going to turn against him. And Jesus is saying, I'm fulfilling that pattern. One of you around my table is going to betray me. He says this in verse 24, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. This is the sovereign, unbreakable plan of God. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Woe to the one who makes the choice to betray Jesus. So you just got to see this, right? We can declare the absolute sovereignty of God over all things and at the same time recognize that Judas is held 100% accountable for the very real decisions that he makes to betray Jesus. And these two are not in the slightest bit contradictory. You can say them with the same breath. Verse 25, Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said, You have said so, which is a way of saying, Hey, man, your word's not mine. To prove it's not Jesus making him go. This is Judas' choice. Jesus is sovereign, though. He knows what's going to happen. He knows what Judas is going to do. What would you do? What would you do if you were at the table and you know, you know who's going to betray you and you're in the middle of the meal and he's like, oh, not me, Jesus, right? Like, what would you do? I can't even tell you. I don't know. My heart goes all kinds of places when I try to put myself in that scenario. Look, look at what Jesus does. They continue on, verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. If, if you were wondering why Jesus delights so much in this woman who gives this most costly, most precious thing for him, it's because of what he's about to do, which is to give the most costly and the most precious thing imaginable. There's nothing more precious than I'm giving my very self for you, my body. Peter puts it this way. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. He has to go give his very body for us to die in our place to take our sins. Jesus says, this is my body, so take it and eat it. In verse 27, he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, my life poured out for you. He gives it in the form of a covenant, a promise, a relational agreement that he will not break. He says, it's the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. For the forgiveness of sins, for the forgiveness of sins past. For the forgiveness of sins present, even in this moment as they sit around the table. But, but there's more. He holds out this, this future promise. I tell you, 
I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There's still future hope. So they respond. They sing a hymn. They go out to the Mount of Olives. Verse 31, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. It's, it's one thing to know that Judas will betray him. It's a reality on a whole other level for him to look around at every single one of them and say, you're all going to fall away. None of you will stick with me. You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written cannot be broken, will be fulfilled. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. I won't abandon you. I'll go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I'll never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter starts denying him right now and says, no, no. No, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So let's pause and think for a minute here about the extremes that we've just witnessed. On, on the one hand, there's Judas who's already plotting to try to bring about Jesus' death. On the other hand, here's Peter saying, I will never fall away, I will be strong. <laughs> Most of us aren't in either of those categories right now, right? <laughs> On an ordinary day, if you catch most Christians, we're more like the disciples around the table. In that moment going, man, I really hope I don't blow this. I really hope his grace is sufficient. I don't, I don't know if my strength, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can keep it up. I don't know if I can keep going. Is it me? Am I the one that's going to fall? Am I the next one that's going to fall away? Am I not going to make it? There's, there's, there's two sides of the coin here. The, the coin of unbelief in Jesus as Savior that plague us. The, the, the one side is thinking that Jesus is simply not strong enough to save. And the other side of the same coin is that I'm too bad. I'm, I'm too heavy. I, I, I'm too much of a heavy weight for him to lift. He's either too weak to lift or I'm too heavy to be lifted. And we can get caught up on either one of those realities. But I want to show you, first of all, the strength of the Savior, the sufficiency of the Savior. He is strong enough to save. He, look at what he gives us in this meal. He gives us his very body. The Son of God incarnate in flesh took on flesh and lived for us and suffered for us. He took our sin for us so that he could give it for us and give it to us so that we would eat it and take it knowing that without food we die, knowing that without eating him, his flesh, we die. He gives his very self for us. He gives us his blood what is necessary for the redemption, for forgiveness of sins. He gives his life and he gives it to us, uh, this, this meal that we can continue to take month after month, year after year to remember our deliverance, to remember our deliverer, to remember his might and his sufficiency as savior. And he gives it to us to eat in community so that we can eat with people who look at us while we eat so that we can look at them while we eat and we can remember, we can remind each other of what we have believed that Jesus is a sufficient savior. And in the midst of this ceremony, 
Jesus embeds a promise for the future. I will eat this again with you. You will make it. My kingdom will come. I'm strong. I am sufficient. And he, he wraps it all up. This gift is wrapped up in the language of covenant. A promise that he will not break. He will never abandon. He will never leave. He will never forsake. Jesus is a sufficient Savior. Okay, I can believe that for other people. I see that objectively. I know I can put my trust in Jesus in one sense. I know that other people can put their trust in Jesus, but like that's an offer that's out there. But what about me specifically? It's hard to apply the promises of grace to me because I see my own sin. I see my own failures, my own shortcomings. What if it works for everyone else but not for me? Friend, I want you to see how very carefully Matthew has worked to wrap up this promise of Jesus' deliverance on one end and the other with the knowledge of the failure of his disciples. The very context of him swearing himself in covenant to us as a people is the context where he says, I know you'll fail. I know that you're weak. I know that you'll fall short. That's why I'm doing this. So that you don't trust in your strength. So that you don't hope in yourself. Every one of them will fall short. Jesus knows that. He makes clear that he knows that before he goes to the cross. Jesus is not caught in a position where he goes to the cross and suffers and dies. And then, and then you know, he rises and then the next day we fall short. And he's like, What? He knew, he knew before he went. That's why he went. This is our Savior, faithful to the end. Matthew says, look at him, look at him. Get your eyes on him. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at the apostasy of others like Judas. Don't be surprised when people have their hearts hardened to the value of Jesus like, like the disciples were in that moment. Don't be surprised by your own sin. I can't believe that came from my heart. What does this mean about me? Don't be surprised. Understand the faithfulness and the power of our Savior is specifically designed to assure you that if you trust in him, he can and he will keep you to the end. And you will eat with him in his kingdom, which is still to come. He is faithful to save even future failures like you and me. We can be deceived by appearances. You can look at Jesus and think he's weak. Or you can look deeper, my friends, and you can see here is a Savior who is sovereign, he's strong, he is sufficient, and he is faithful. He has our stories in control. He reigns over all of this, and we can put our trust in him. Let's pray that God will help us.